Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 5. I hope you know where we've been. John chapter 1 had an 18-verse preamble. Then we saw the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ and his calling of some disciples before he went to Cana. Cana of Galilee. We saw in John chapter 2 that at Cana of Galilee, he turned the water into wine. Came back to Jerusalem and drove the money changers out of the temple at the first Passover he attended in his ministry. John chapter 3, he met with Nicodemus at night. And then John the Baptist explained to his apostles that he was an inferior to the Lord Jesus Christ and exalted his Lord and Master. Chapter 4, the Lord Jesus Christ made his way to Galilee again and passed through Samaria where he stopped at Jacob's well, met the woman of Samaria, converted her, and much of her city. Then he returned again to Galilee, and there he healed the son of the nobleman who was at Capernaum. And we come to John chapter 5, and I read to you the first nine verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. Amen. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Amen and amen. amen. There is much doctrine in John chapter 5, more than the chapters we've covered so far except chapter 3 in the preamble, in the first 18 verses of chapter 1. I hope that you'll note very quickly that in John's gospel, we have recorded for us Events between the Lord Jesus Christ and individual persons, unlike the other Gospels. John chapter 3 was Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, a single man, privately at night, and laying on him some truth that he had never been taught in seminary. John chapter 4 is the woman of Samaria. And he engages her in a private conversation, just the two of them, and he lays truth on her about the reformation of religion taking place under him and by his apostles. John chapter 5 is going to show us a great multitude lying in five porches at the pool of Bethesda, but Jesus heals one, one of them. And that very fact disturbs people. 
it disturbs textual critics who do not like John chapter 5 and verse 4 and the last part of verse 3. One of their reasons is because it isn't befitting of God to send angels to stir up water that only heal one man. Do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ would answer to that kind of nonsense? He would answer with Luke chapter 4 when he stood in Nazareth and wouldn't heal a single man and told them, you're going to say to me, physician, heal thyself. Well, let me remind you that in the days of Elisha, there were lots of lepers in Israel, but only Naaman the Syrian was saved from leprosy and so forth. There's an answer in the Word of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ knows how to answer it. And the fact that one man is healed is something for which we should give thanks that the one man was healed. Are you here today because God has healed you in various ways at various times? Absolutely. Who cares how many He heals? If He heals one, it's more than our race deserves. If He heals one and it's you, you should give thanks, and He has healed us. He's been gloriously kind to us. If you're looking at John chapter 5, very briefly, the first nine verses, Jesus heals the impotent man. Verses 10 through 16, the controversy arising because of him doing it on the Sabbath day and the Jews wanting to kill him for it. It will hang on to destroy him for over a year. John chapter 7 is over a year later And in the verses that I gave you to read last night out of John 7, when Jesus told them, you're still trying to kill me for one work. The one work was John 5, the pool of Bethesda. A year later, because he's been in Galilee. Whenever he comes to Jerusalem for a Passover feast, or for the Feast of Tabernacles, or for the Feast of Pentecost, the Jews remember what they have against him, and what they have against him is what he did right here, in doing it on the Sabbath day. And there's one thing I love about our Lord. He knew it was the Sabbath without a daytimer. He knew it was the Sabbath. He knew they would hate him for it. And he did it anyway. I love our Lord because he was teaching them that the relic was to be understood in a practical way with mercy. And we understand it even better than he taught it at that time because we've had the blessed ministry of the Apostle Paul to teach us that the Sabbath is past. Thank you, Lord. Verses 17 through 23 of this fifth chapter, Jesus identifies God as his Father and equal. Verses 24 through 29, verses that we have used many times in our history, Jesus teaches regeneration, conversion, and physical resurrection and their separation. Verses 30 through 38, Jesus was witnessed, and he declares this fact by God, by John the Baptist, and by his works. And in verses 39 through 47, to finish the chapter, Jesus will explain why the Jews did not believe on him. Verse 1 of John 5, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. After him passing through Samaria, going back to Galilee, and spending some time there, healing the nobleman's son, there's a feast in Jerusalem. We assume it to be the Passover. There's a number of reasons. They're not important. I want to say this to you. 
Jesus as a preacher, Jesus as a minister, attended four Passovers. We know that because he died at the Passover. If he died at the Passover and his ministry was three and a half years, then he was at four Passovers. If that math is too high, go home and put it on a piece of paper. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. Okay, I had an assumption in that paragraph, and that is that the ministry of Jesus Christ was three and a half years long. Why do we believe that his ministry was three and a half years long? Because of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy, Jesus' baptism was at the end of the 69th week, and he was cut off and died in the midst of the 70th week. And that those are weeks of years. How many items are in a week? Seven. So if you die in the midst of a seven-week time period, then you were in your ministry after your baptism three and a half years. That's where it comes from. We don't assume anything without the Word of God. Those are the last four verses of Daniel chapter 9, and it is called the 70 weeks prophecy. We, we understand that there's a feast in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter what it is, but I'm telling you that John is particular about Passovers. We have had chapter 2 and verse 13, his first. We have John chapter 6 and verse 4. We have John chapter 13 and verse 1. We, John is careful about telling us of Passovers. And so when we look at this one, and there's more reasonings that they're not worth going into right now. We, we have to make progress to get to verse 9. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus is in Galilee, 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And so he comes back to Jerusalem because he is faithful to the word of God. The Jews were, were expected to be at the three annual feasts every year in Jerusalem. Though they lived 70 miles away and did not have the vehicle that you drive to get there in 45, to get there in an hour. Yeah, I caught some of you. We don't have vehicles like that to cover that 70 miles quickly. They had to walk. But Jesus would do it. Do you, do you realize how many times we have already seen Jesus go back to Galilee and then return to Jerusalem for a feast? He just keeps coming back for feasts because... That's what was expected under the law. And so it's a reminder to us that he, called the son of David, was like David. Because David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing have I desired of the Lord. And that is not a wife, and that is not a job, and that is not a career, and that is not money, and that is especially not health. One thing have I desired of the Lord. And that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So that was David, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was like David in that when there was a feast, Jesus was there. We want to be like that. So the Bible says to us, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so that's why we come together. We want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus went up to Jerusalem to fulfill the word of God, to preach and to heal one man. Verse 2, Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. There was a lot of sheep needed in Jerusalem for all the sacrifices 
So there was a sheep market there for the buying and selling of sheep. So that you wouldn't, if you were coming from Jerusalem and you wanted to offer sheep, if you were coming from Galilee, 70 miles, and you were coming to Jerusalem and you wanted to offer sheep, would you bring your sheepies with you? Or would you bring cash and convert them to sheep once you got to Jerusalem? There was a sheep market there. Recall, in John chapter 2, Jesus had to drive the money changers and those that sold sheep out of the temple because they had moved their merchandising right into the temple grounds. And we've already covered that in John chapter 2. So there's a sheep market there and there's a big pool. Observers that have historically gone to Jerusalem and looked for the pool of Bethesda have described a pool a little larger than a football field. Whether you know, that would be large enough to have five porches around it with a crowd under those porches that could be called a great multitude. All that makes sense. It doesn't really matter. But there's a pool there by the sheep market. The Bible refers to this sheep market and sheep gate of the city of Jerusalem and other places. John mentions both of the pools that are in Jerusalem. There's the pool of Siloam that we're going to run into in a few chapters. These things are not what's important. But they're, they're data for us. And remember, there were the, the first readers of the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ had been to Jerusalem. They knew Jerusalem. They knew about these events. They could verify these events. They're not as crucial to us. This pool is called Bethesda, which means house of mercy. There's a little place just outside of Washington, D.C. called Bethesda, Maryland. It's not... A, a real city. It is a census-defined place called Bethesda, Maryland, and there is a hospital that we generally refer to as Bethesda Naval Hospital. It's really Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, but it's a great name, Bethesda, House of Mercy, House of Kindness, because it's a place where healing can take place, and so the pool was called Bethesda, or the House of Mercy, and it had five porches, which is an exterior structure forming a covered approach to the entrance of something, and under those porches could be a great multitude of people, as verse 2 tells us. Verse 3, in these five porches lay a great multitude, lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. A great multitude, a very large number of sick folk, so sick, and they're laying there. They're not standing. They have to wait. They're in a laying position, some of, some of them because they can't move, the blind because they have to wait for what's described in the latter part of verse 3, and that is the moving of the water. When a person is impotent, this man is going to be described as impotent a couple of times. It means powerless to move the whole body or to move some limbs of the body. The lame man that was laid at the gate beautiful in Acts chapter 3 is called an impotent man, and we're told that he's lame, so he was impotent in his legs. There's an impotent man described elsewhere in the Bible with it in his hands. Halt, similar to lame or limping. The feet do not function normally. So they're called halt because they halt. They can't move like you move. And there's withered bodily members dried up and shrunk. Withered hands, withered feet, withered legs, unable 
to function properly and they're impotent because they can't move their limbs or their whole body, which means to be powerless. Why would there be such a large crowd of very ill persons around this pool? Because it was a mineral springs and had some natural healing properties? Not a chance. They'd all been in the pool. When have you ever known of mineral springs healing the blind? Or causing a withered hand to grow out? Never, and you never will. But we have here a large crowd of powerless, weak folk, and blind folk, and lame folk, and withered people with withered limbs to their body, waiting for the moving of the water. These words in the last part of verse 3 introduce the work of an angel to trouble the waters for healing. The full explanation for the troubling of the water is in verse 4. There are two references around verse 4's explanation. This one right here in verse 3 and in verse 7. The last part of verse 3 says, waiting for the moving of the water. In verse 7, the paralytic, we call him a paralytic because he was paralyzed, because he was impotent, because he couldn't move. Others could move better than him. While he was crawling on his elbows, trying to get to the pool. He said he could try to get there, but others could step down before him. In verse 7, he says, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled. Aha! What is that there in verse 7 for? But to tell us that this whole situation of of John 5, 1 through 9, depends upon the angelic miracle that was performed at certain times by an angel coming down and stirring up the water. Don't forget, the last part of verse 3 refers to it, and in the middle of verse 7 refers to it. If verse 4 is not true, then there should not be any reference to it in verses 3 or 7. These words, the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4, are missing from most modern versions of the Bible. If the words are in brackets, it simply means that the words shouldn't be there, but those publishers are little sissy wimps and are afraid to take the verse out. Because if you read what they mean by brackets, they mean that there is not manuscript evidence for those words. I have some Bibles up here for you to come and look at. I've got the NIV. I've got the English Standard Version. I've got the New Schofield Reference Bible, dear dad. And what uh, C.I. Schofield and his editors put around John 5, 3 and John 5, 4. The best and oldest manuscripts do not have these verses. I've got up here the Geneva Bible, Tyndale's Bible, Wycliffe's Bible, Cranmer's Bible, the Reims-Douay version of the Catholics, and I've got another book that will show you all the Greek and English versions that don't have John 5, 4. And you're welcome to look at these. For anyone that's serious about the study of God's Word, and you would like this little paperback cop book that I have that tells you all the whole verse, partial verse, deletions in the New Testament, and which Greek translations and which English translations don't have them, just tell me. And uh, you'll have one. Because it's a very valuable little book. John 5, 3 
the last part where it says waiting for the moving of the water and all of verse 4 are missing in these versions. The American Standard Version of 1901, the NIV, the, basic, the Bible in basic English, the Common English Bible, the Complete Jewish Bible, the uh, HCSB of the Southern Baptist Convention, the, e the English Standard Version, the Good News Translations, God's Word Translation, the Message, the New American Standard Bible, the New Century Version, the New Living Translation, the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, and of course the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. The history of how these versions have dealt with these words being included in one edition, being excluded in the next edition, being included in the next edition, damn them, are damnable occurrences showing them they do not have any authority for the words they stick in their Bibles. And it's ridiculous, and I've got links in the outline that you can click on and read of how some of these English versions and how some of these Greek versions will have the words, not have the words, have the words in brackets, have the words without brackets. After all that, it's amazing because they're always guessing. How many brackets do you have around these words in your King James Bible? How many footnotes do you have at the bottom? And if you have a footnote at the bottom of your King James Bible page, I will buy your Bible after this service. I won't pay very much for it, and you won't like what I do to it after I buy it. If we do not have John 5, 4, I want you to tell me why there's a great multitude of lame, blind, withered, halt, and impotent folk lying around this pool. I want you to tell me why the man that was a cripple wanted to get in that pool so he could drown. There's an explanation given to us in the Word of God, and it's verse 4. We choose by faith to trust the words of God against the doubts or lies of Satan when it comes to the Word of God. If if these words are not scripture and they've been inserted by some person, what is the troubled water in 5-7? If these words do not belong in the text, why a crowd around that water? If the words do not belong in the text, why not get in after the others? We choose by faith to trust the words of God against the doubts or lies of Satan. The devil's first attack on our first parents was what? What is the first attack of the devil on men? The Bible version issue. Yea, hath God said, those were the first words of the devil to our first parents, to Eve. Yea, hath God said, she walked into a Christian bookstore that day in the Garden of Eden, and she heard the sales clerk say to her, Yea, hath God said, why are you in here looking for a King James Bible? I've got 50 alternatives for you that are better. Yea, hath God said, his first attack is to question and slander the word of God. He changed the word of God. God had said, thou shalt surely die. The devil said, thou shalt not surely die. It's only the change of one word. Is that a one word argument? The devil used a one word argument and tried to overthrow the word of God. We have seen his Bible work removing words before. He removed the words, the brother of in 2 Samuel 21, 19, so that that verse says, Who killed Goliath? Elhanan, a friend of David's from Bethlehem, killed Goliath in all those Bible versions. 
in 2 Samuel 21, 19, because he took three words away from that verse, as opposed to a whole verse and part of verse 3. Look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Who wants to come up and read a verse for me out of the NIV? Acts chapter 8. This is a wonderful story. We love this history. We love this description of preaching about Jesus. We love the description of the man from Ethiopia explaining to Philip, how can I understand Scripture unless I have some man to guide me? And so Philip guided him about the Lord Jesus Christ. They happed upon an oasis of water. And in verse 36, as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? He asks an excellent, outstanding, fair, logical question of Philip. Let's check the NIV. What does the NIV say in Acts chapter 8 and verse 37 about this, the answer to the question? The question is so good. Let me see if they have the question. Verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Tell me to read 37. There is no 37. It jumps to 38. They can't even count. They don't have a 37. You've all been, most of you have been through this with me before. There isn't even a 37 here. It just jumps to 38. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized them. Are you serious? Let's try this English standard. It doesn't have it. Right. It doesn't have Acts 8.37. It doesn't even have a 37. What does Acts 8.37 say and why wouldn't they want it in the Bible? I'll answer the first question, you answer the second one. The verse says, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Is that a pretty decent verse? Does that verse do two things for us? Number one, before you can get baptized, you have to be a believer. If thou believest, and how should you believe? With all thine heart. That is a serious verse about telling us what is necessary in order to get baptized. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And then what should we believe? Because the eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus Christ, the man born 2,000 years ago with a mother named Mary and a legal father named Joseph, is the Son of God. That is important incarnate sonship doctrine for us. All in one verse, and it's gone. There's no answer to the question, what doth hinder me to be baptized? There are conditions and qualifications and prerequisites to be baptized if you're going to be baptized biblically. Back to John chapter 5. I don't know why I get worked up about the Word of God like that. I can tell you why. When the thought of being ordained to be a preacher was coming up in my life in 1982 and 83 and 84, I knew that I better have something to preach or I shouldn't get ordained. I should stay right in the bank and keep doing what I was doing because I liked it a whole lot. If we don't have the word of God to preach and to count on every single word and to trust our one-word arguments that we have, what do we have? Right. 
the last thing you want to do is ever come into a room and listen to me talk about what, what might have gone through my mind in the last 24 hours. We have seen the devil's work adding whole apocryphal books to the Bible. How the Catholics can come up with 73 books of the Bible while we have 66. We have seen his Bible work corrupting places like Mark 1-2. I'm mentioning these by way of repetition, not to fill up the clock, by way of repetition for you to remember them so that you can use them with people using false Bible versions. Look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. You know, I've already given you John 5, 4. Without John 5, 4's explanation, what do we have in John 5 but a great deal of confusion and insanity? I've given you 2 Samuel 21, 19, where their Bibles say that Elhanan killed Goliath because the three words were removed, the brother of. Elhanan was a friend of David's who killed a giant named Lamai, the brother of Goliath. First Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 5 tells us his name and gives us the exact corresponding verse to 2 Samuel 21, 19. I've shown you that in Acts 8, there's no answer to the eunuch's excellent question. Mark 1, 2. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face. Are you looking at Mark 1, 2? As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Do you have a little cross-center reference about the words, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face. Are there little, is there a little letter there that tells you where that quotation came from? Because it says it's written in the prophets? D. Oh, mine's a little D. Does, okay, Malachi 3.1. Does it say that in your Bible? That that quotation is from... Let's try this English Standard Version. It's got to be good. Bob Jones University uses it got to be real good. No way. Mark 1-2 in an ESV, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now that's confusing. Do you know what their footnote says? Their footnote says it's written in Malachi 3-1. Right. Then why in the text does it say it's written in Isaiah? Can you understand that, Landon? No? Let's go over it again. Mark 1-2 is a quotation from Malachi 3-1. The English Standard Version says that that quotation came from Isaiah the prophet. It came from Malachi 3-1. Malachi the prophet. Their Bible is wrong. Their footnotes are right. But the footnotes aren't Scripture. Let's try the NIV. Of course, you know that we're not going to take a leap upward with the NIV. Mark 1-2, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. No, it is not written in Isaiah the prophet. You can read Isaiah frontwards, backwards, or from the middle out, but you're not going to find the words, I will send my, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Now let me show you the magic and I, I shouldn't use that word, but I'm just saying the glory, the beauty, the power, the majesty, right. the correctness, the accuracy, and the integrity of the King James Bible. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That is Isaiah the prophet. Right. 
The, the, the quotation in verse 2 is Malachi the prophet in Malachi 3.1. What does the King James Version do? Look at verse 2. As it is written in the prophets, plural, because you have the prophet Malachi in verse 2 and you have the prophet Isaiah in verse 3. Why did I just go over that again and cost me precious time from John 5? So that you will remember that there are a few choice places to go to show people that with all the advances, with all the computerization of the Bible, with all their online text testing programs, they should be able to figure out that Mark 1-2 cannot be found in the book of Isaiah. It is not written there. It was not written by Isaiah. It's in Malachi. Right. Do you know why that's in the Bible? For simple people like us can ignore all their years of study of Greek or Hebrew or textual criticism because they don't understand they are superstitious, and they all follow each other because none of them have the courage to step out and say, wait a minute, the emperor has no clothes in Mark 1-2. He's naked. We're naked. Don't you dare sign off on that new version of the Bible. But they just all pat each other on the back. It's so good to see you, Dr. So-and-so. Doctor, I've, I've been so blessed by reading your books recently. They just flatter each other. We want to come to this Bible and humble ourselves before it and say, Lord, I was the biggest underachiever in the history of public education of America. Sports Illustrated, Cycle World, and Track and Field News were more important to me reading. I enjoyed banking and wanted to stay in it. But will you show me something out of your words that I have something to preach with power? Right. And he showed me his word a long time ago. And I'm very thankful, very thankful. I'm nothing, nothing. But the word of God is everything. Amen. There's sufficient manuscript and other evidence for the verses, but we choose to place our confidence in the King James Version by God's infallible internal facts. Faith, fruit, facts, and fools. The four F's are how we prove the King James Bible. Other men have spent their years proving the King James Bible by manuscript evidence and textual criticism and the history of the text and how it came into being and how we got our 66 books and the canon of the Bible, the canon of the New Testament. Other men have done that. We have their books. I recommend the black book that has disappeared out of our library that I've ordered 15 copies more of this past week called Which Version is the Bible? If you want that line of reasoning, our line of reasoning is God's told us inside the Bible what to look for in a book or what to look for in prophets that tell us that they are God's ministers, and God has put his divine stamp of approval upon the King James Bible with its spiritual fruit for 405 years. Amen. These other Bibles, they're the toys of the perilous times contemporary Christians. Totally different in the fruit that they bear compared to what the King James Version did around the world for 405 years. Verse 4, tell, verse 4 of John 5, John 5, 4, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. That is the divinely inspired explanation for why there's a great multitude lying around this pool and why the man couldn't get in first and be healed. The explanation and why there's a troubling of the water is explained in verse 4 in its entirety. John recorded for us the explanation. 
by this angel. We are not confounded, surprised, or ashamed of angels doing powerful things because we can read throughout the Bible angels doing things like this. The angels, the Bible has so many examples of angels doing supernatural feats. If you want to see a 15-page outline called the Angels of God on our website preached years ago. The angels announced Jesus' birth to both parents privately and to shepherds in a field. Jesus had testified to Nathanael in this gospel in chapter 1 that, Nathanael, you're going to see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. My ministry is going to be attended by angels. The fact that we don't read about this pool and its healing in the Old Testament, why should we? The Lord Jesus Christ was coming. Angels increased their activity around the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elect angels and fallen angels, all increasing their activity around the birth of the Son of God. And we shouldn't be a bit surprised, and we're not. Why might a scribe remove the verse? He did not believe such a fanciful event as John 5, 4 describes. The supernatural is hard to accept for natural men because they can't think above what they can see with their eyes, but they sure do most of what they believe they can't see, like evolution. Luke twenty-two forty-three 43 is an angel strengthening the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Westcott and Hort, Nestle, and the Bible Society Greek texts, which are really only the three that are counted upon by anyone, double bracket that verse as well, because they can't imagine an angel being in there helping the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's consistent when it's something supernatural beyond their ability to explain, and it's a little confusing to them, they just take it out. Why might a scribe remove the verse? because he rejected healing only one fit person. Do you understand that only a fit person could get in the pool to be healed? Because you had to be fit enough to jump up and race to the pool to get in. Oh, I've, I've read some neat things this week about blaming God for such a cruel way of healing. If there's healing at all for being withered, thank God for it. Amen. Don't blame God for it. Isn't it touching to read the ideas of men of what is fair and right from God? But did they not read that out of this great multitude, Jesus only healed one? Forget the water, forget the angel, Jesus only healed one. Did they never go to Luke 4, like I've mentioned to you, where Jesus didn't heal any? He didn't heal anyone at Nazareth. Nazareth. And he told them why. Because they didn't deserve it. Prophet is not without honor, save in his own country. And then he told them about God's sovereignty and choosing Naaman the Syrian to get rid of his leprosy and the little widow woman of Zarepta being taken care of by Elijah while all the widows in Israel were not taken care of by Elijah. He told them that and they tried to kill him for it. And instead of killing us, they would, if they could, they take the verse out of our Bibles. Except it's their Bibles, not ours. Amen. The King James Version is still the best seller in the world. Uncopyrighted thing that it is. They all want to put a copyright on theirs so that they can get a little bit of this or a whole lot of this out of a Bible. We're not confounded, surprised, or ashamed of healing by physical objects. When we look at verse 4, and troubled water was healing people by an angel's influence, that doesn't trouble us. Moses had healed deadly serpent bites by a brass serpent. Elisha healed Naaman by dipping seven times in the Jordan River. 
since there wasn't a pool of Bethesda available. He dipped him in the dirty Jordan. Jesus is going to heal shortly in this gospel in John chapter 9 by spitting on the ground and making what we would call mud, what the Bible calls clay, and sticking it in the blind man's eyes. Was there any healing virtue in the mud? The healing virtue was in Jesus Christ. And the healing virtue in the pool of Bethesda was in the angel from God. Peter's going to heal by his shadow in Acts chapter 5, and Paul's going to heal by his handkerchiefs and aprons in Acts 19. So we're not shocked or surprised by God using some physical object or medium or media by which to convey divine supernatural healing. The water did not ordinarily or at other times have any healing properties in it. It only applied to a certain season, and then only the first in the water. And this explains the great multitude in the porches waiting for this activation. If the water had natural healing properties, they could have visited at any time, or they all would have been in the water. If the water retained healing virtue after the first, all might have been healed. Since the water could heal any disease, the crowd had no limiting factor because any disease could be healed by it. But all of that is explained in one verse. I'm going to read it to you again and how it explains all the questions that arise about this particular event of healing. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. And so that explains it. Brethren, it is so interesting for them to say, like in the New Schofield Reference Bible, that's also sold in the Bob Jones University bookstore. It's considered too, too smart and too intellectual and too studied for the average student to use. So they get the English Standard Version. In this generation, and in my generation, they got the New American Standard Version. But the, the New Schofield Reference Bible, if you were to read that thing, it's considered a master's degree in theology if you were to thumb through the pages of that beauty and read, read the uh, ideas of that troubled Jew, C.I. Schofield, and what he wrote about the gospel. Now, children, you just go to school tomorrow and be good students and get A's on all your tests. And Here's the verse. A wise man keepeth it in till afterwards, but a fool uttereth all his mind. So I'll be the fool in the pulpit for the Lord's sake, and you be the wise man tomorrow by keeping it in till afterwards. That is a Bible verse, and that is wisdom. So it's wonderful wisdom. I love that verse. New Schofield Reference Bible says in its footnote about this verse with brackets around it, the oldest and the best manuscripts. Uh-huh. Who said they were the best manuscripts? Oh, you did. Well, that's interesting. And what do you mean by the best manuscripts? Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, that's what they always mean. Mm-hmm. Vaticanus, where is that one? Can you Pope's guess from the first five letters? Pope's Library, Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, where was that discovered? In a convent at the top of, at the base of uh, Mount Sinai, Sinaiticus, two Catholic Bible versions from the fourth century. The oldest and the best manuscripts don't have those verses. We don't care what Sinaiticus and Vaticanus have or don't have. Right. We know that there were Greek and Latin scriptures earlier that had it, and that commentators writing in the second century quoted it, right. as it is in our King James Bibles. I wonder if they had a King James. There's more than just manuscripts when it comes to Bible evidence. There's commentaries quoting from Scripture in centuries where there are no manuscripts available. 
I wonder why the Bible would disappear, but men's commentaries about the Bible would remain. Because one's more important than the other. The Bibles were used up. And once they were transcribed perfectly because they were falling apart, they were destroyed so that you wouldn't have a partial Bible. Tatian, 175 A.D. Tertullian, 160 to 220 A.D. Both quote it in its entirety like they're reading a King James Bible in their commentaries about the scriptures. Back to John 5. Verse 5, and a certain man was there. Oh, by the way, there's links in the outline if you want to do fun reading on what I just told you. It's a lot of fun to me. So I go downstairs and I look through my 150 false Bible versions and say, which ones do I bring to show the church? Well, there they are. I just brought a few. And a certain man, brethren, do you love that? And a certain man. Everyone sitting in here today is a certain man, a certain woman, or a certain child. Do you understand that? And a certain man was there. Well, yeah, there were lots of men there, Lord. There were lots of women there. There were children there. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. He's called an impotent man in this context. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been there a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? A certain man was there. Remember John 3? It was Nicodemus. Remember John 4? It was the woman of Samaria. John 5, it's this paralytic. You are a certain man, woman, or child today, and you should trust a personal God that loves you and cares for you individually and personally and privately. You should never allow your sinful flesh or the devil's darts to doubt God's care for you personally. It is true. You do get lost in the crowd. It is true. You do get lost in the crowd, and no one else cares but God. And the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's only considering men when you get lost in the crowd. God has chosen to deal individually with each man. And this is one example. David understood and claimed that out of all of Israel, God liked him. First Chronicles 28 and verse 4. David said, out of all of Israel, God chose the tribe of Judah for its leaders. Out of the great tribe of Judah, God chose the house of Jesse. Out of Jesse's family, and he had eight sons... He liked me. That's 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 4. That is the wording. He liked me. Do you believe that about the God of heaven? When you talk to him, do you believe it? When you tell him that you love him, do you believe it? When he sheds abroad his love in your heart by the Holy Ghost, do you believe that he loves you individually, personally, privately, forever, passionately? i got to chase this. If you don't get to eat until tonight is... It's short. We sang, He hideth my life in the depths of His love and covers me there with His hand. Did we sing that? Do you believe that? Individually, personally. I have got to read the words of Abigail, a woman of great understanding to you. She spoke these words to David. David, a man is risen to pursue thee. That is King Saul and his whole army. You've been hiding in the woods, David, on our property, Nabal's and mine. Saul and his whole army is chasing you. You've had to live in the woods like a dog. 
Yet a man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul. But the soul of my Lord, this is the soul of David, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God and the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. First Samuel 25 and verse 29. That is a very personal, wonderful verse that though David was being chased around and forgotten by the nation of Israel, for the most part, he was not being protected by them, that he was bound up, bound up in the bundle of life with the Lord his God, and Saul and all of his enemies were like in a sling with all that centrifugal force to hurl them far away from God. What a difference he makes individually, because it says, yet a man is risen. That man was Saul. That man's last days on this earth was with the witch of Endor. That man had his head cut off and his seven foot, six inch body nailed to a wall in Philistia and his sons killed on the same day in battle. And his family tree cut off and replaced with a completely different tribe from Benjamin to Judah, from Saul to David. A man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God and the souls of thine enemies. Them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. Now when a woman talks like that, marry her. What did David think? What did David think? He married her. That's right. He married her immediately because the Lord made her eligible. How did he do that? He made her a widow in 10 days. Why did it take 10 days? Because he wanted Nabal to have time to think about David with his wife. Oh, yes. I love the God of David. Amen. John 5. 38 years he's been there. I behaved myself. I quieted and calmed myself as a weaned child. This man, for 38 years, waited and waited, and waited, and calmed himself and put his trust in the Lord. Did he respond angrily when Jesus asked him the question, Wilt thou be made whole? No, he responded very humbly and eagerly and explained his predicament, that it was an impossibility. And what could Jesus do for him? We have in verse 6, When Jesus saw him lie, I want you to know that Jesus sees everything about you. Don't you ever forget that. Jesus sees it all. All things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. If you read Psalm 41 last night, then you know that God makes up even your sick bed when you're sick in your bed. Psalm 41 and verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ is there when you're in your sick bed. Psalm 139 tells us that no matter where you go, no matter how old you are, no matter if you're not even born yet, no matter if you're still in your mother's womb, he sees all your members as being put together perfect because he's got them all written down in his book about how your body's going to develop and come together. It's all there in Psalm 139. It doesn't matter whether you're in heaven, if you're on the wings of the morning, it doesn't matter if you're in hell, it doesn't matter where you are, you're in the grave, wherever. He sees you and knows you and will never lose you. Right. And this man was never lost. For 38 years he was there, but in the end it was worth it all. The impotent man said in verse 7, Remember I told you, he was called an impotent man, answered him, Sir, sir, I have no man. When you get in real trouble, there's no one on earth that can really help you. You have no man. When the water is troubled, 
When there is divine power available from heaven, no one else can bring it to you. But the Lord Jesus Christ can bring it to you. Amen. God can send it to you. His angels can bring it to you. The Holy Spirit can assure you of it. The Word of God can tell you of it. Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming on my elbows, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. O Lord, thank you for the power of the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a word is this? Is the title of a sermon series on our website. What a word is this? And those words are taken from Luke chapter 4, when Jesus cast the devil out of a man, and the people said, What a word is this? That he commands even the devils, and they obey him. The disciples would say that the words, Peace, be still were pretty impressive words because a great storm turned into a great calm because of the power of those words. The Lord Jesus Christ has said things to you, and if you've never risen before or in 38 years, you've never risen to do what you ought to do. Take up your bed and walk. If you haven't walked in 38 years, but God tells you to love your spouse a certain way, then start loving them right now that way because Jesus will give you the strength, the ability, the power, the contentment to do it. Every father in here is capable of being a father like Joshua and Abraham. You just got to do it. The, the Lord says, do it. Bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Just do it. He'd never walked for 38 years. He'd crawled on his elbows. He had rolled everywhere, whatever. Rise. Take up thy bed and walk. There is nothing too hard for you to do. Quit making excuses. They're sinful, rebellious excuses. They are nothing better than that. He's commanded you to have a great marriage, so do it. It is not an option. It is not a suggestion. You will be held accountable for it, and he's going to tear your life up before you get to die. If you don't give him a marriage like you should as a Christian in this church, he's commanded you to forgive and love your enemies, so do it. If you don't love your enemies and forgive them from your heart, he will turn you over to the tormentors. These are the words of the living God in the Bible. They are Matthew chapter 18. He will turn you over to the tormentors. Jesus does not believe in the Geneva Convention. Jesus does not have a problem with waterboarding. Jesus will turn you over to the tormentors if you don't forgive and love from your heart your enemies that have taken a hundred pence from you in some ridiculous little offense. All of that is to say, when the Lord says to do something, brethren, do you know what it's time to do? Rise, take up your bed, walk, run, leap. Where do I get that from? Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, where the man that was laid lame from his mother's womb at the beautiful gate of the temple was healed by Peter and John, and he leaped for joy. He was running around and dancing and doing aerobics in the temple, and all the people were in amazement because to get to the temple, they had seen that guy at the beautiful gate over and over, but there he was leaping and praising God. Where was this man? Where did Jesus find this man in a few verses? Oh, come Nobody read John 5 last night. Okay, let me show you. He was in the temple. He was in the temple praising God when Jesus encountered him the next time. Oh, brethren, what has the Lord told me to do? What has the Lord told you to do? There are things he's told me to do that intimidate me. What am I supposed to do? Rise. Take up thy bed and walk. There's things that intimidate you. They haven't worked in the past. Yeah, because you tried in your own strength. Elbow, left elbow, right elbow. You tried it on your elbows. 
Just run in his joy, in his service, in his words, in, with confidence in him. He'll enable you. Verse 9, and immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. For those of you that are even thinking about a career in physical therapy, I want you to know that the Lord has no use for you. When he heals, Sarah, Sarah, don't be upset at me. When he heals, is it right? There's no occupational therapy here. He rose, he rolled up his bed, put it on his shoulder and took off. He didn't need physical therapy. He didn't need occupational therapy because the Lord was in it. You say, well, that sounds a little fanciful. I like your answer. Bye-bye. There's a lot of churches in town that'll take you. They like that kind of questioning the word of God and criticizing what is written in scripture. We've bet our lives in this world and our lives in the next world on what it says right here. And we believe every bit of that. Why in the world would our God that created our physical body, where do you think it came from? Some spider that got a little horny with another spider? Where do you think your body came from? God made your body. God made your legs. God made your arms. He doesn't need physical therapies, therapists. He doesn't need occupational therapists. He just heals by his word. He said, let there be light. And there was light. He said, rise. Take up your bed and walk. And immediately. I love Benny. You know I speak as a fool for a moment. Benny <laughs> blows on somebody. They fall down. Get up. I can't yet. I can't. Not with the Lord. Not unless, not unless he chose to do it in stages like one man. Right. He applied something to his eyes. And he said, what do you see now? I, I see men like trees walking around. Because it was just to bring more focus on the Lord Jesus Christ as being the one healing. Right. Just like the mud. You know, I was crazy enough as a child when I heard a Bible story like mud to try it. To go out and spit in the dirt, make mud, stick it in somebody's eyes that was blind and think it's going to work. The whole idea is ludicrous, but it shows the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to take something that you know has no healing properties and to heal a man. What is the Lord expecting of you? Rise, take up your bed and walk. Immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked. And the Lord Jesus Christ knew what was going to happen because it was on the Sabbath day. And I thank him for doing it on that relic of the Old Testament and causing the trouble that's in the next few verses, which we'll take up after our break. But if there's just a couple of things that you should remember, you have the word of God in your hands. Believe it's every word. Jesus deals with us individually and personally and privately. And when he says, rise, take up your bed and walk, you can do anything he tells you to do and you can do it well. And he'll bless you in the doing but he won't bless you in the thinking about it. He'll bless you in the doing of it. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.